0: is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our show today is a check-in on AI in healthcare. And our guest today is um, Nacho Orlando. Uh, welcome to the show, Nacho. Thank you um, very much, Stephen, for having so, Nacho is director of the AI labs at Arian Coder, a product development firm in Boston and uh, Montevideo, specializing in developing machine learning based software solutions for healthcare. He's also an associate researcher at uh, Conocet in Argentina, working at the intersection of AI and medical imaging. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. The format of the show is that it's 90 minutes long, and Nacho and I will spend the first half discussing the news and the macro picture, uh, and then we'll spend the second half of the show talking about, um, about it, checking in on AI and healthcare. Throughout the call, we'll be taking um, feedback and questions from the audience. So in order for you to do more than just watch, um, you need to get an account on our platform, callin.com. You can do that through the webpage, callin.com, and you can do it through the Call-In Social Podcasting app on your smartphone. Um, and you can still do it. You're not late, you can, uh, you can go open the account and log in, and then you can participate with us in the show. Um, So, uh, and with that, Nacho, um, can you please give us a brief introduction of yourself?
1: Yes, sure. So, well, first of all, again, thanks, uh, Steven, for having me here. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Um, My name is Jose Ignacio Orlando, but everyone calls me Nacho, like the chips. Um, I'm from Argentina, uh, not from Mexico, and uh, I'm as you mentioned before, I'm the director of the AI Labs at Iron Coder. Um We are a Boston-based product development studio, as you mentioned, uh, founded in three pillars, engineering, uh, product, and AI. I'm responsible of the AI branch of the company, and our goal as a company is to democratize AI innovation uh, for startups, for big companies, uh, even for laboratories doing fundamental uh, or, or applied research uh, in a clinical setting, let's say. And uh, as you mentioned as well, I'm also an associate researcher in CONICET, which is the largest scientific institution, governmental scientific institution in Latin America. I have my group of PhD students. We nerd around ai and applications in healthcare
0: so yeah that's me that's great so now we'll move on to our first category of news which is macro news so the the biggest macro story continues to be uh, war in the Middle east so very tragic um, uh, also the possibility of uh, it expanding and t- more widely in the sector to yemen to lebanon Um, uh, uh, possibly to to, to Syria, possibly to Iran. Uh, And so from from the, and I, I try to look at everything from the perspective of what I call the innovation economy. So the innovation economy is young companies and the VCs that back them, the investors that back them. So in general, war like this is bad for the innovation economy. Um, it's uh, It leads to uncertainty. People who are embarking on five-year projects, seven-year projects feel less certain about what the world will look like down the road and less, less willing to sign contracts. Um, uh, it could very much lead to higher oil prices and high, higher oil prices would lead to uh, inflation uh, and a recession, um, uh, and uh, it could even possibly lead to an oil embargo, um, where uh, it could be a formal embargo, or it could just be certain oil producers go offline or refuse to sell oil to some countries. Uh, and so, all of these are, you know, growing uncertainty, not not good for the innovation economy. So, Nacho, any any thoughts on? And, and I think we we haven't started seeing these things yet um war also if if the u.s is involved to the extent of of um sending uh war material and money to israel also to ukraine and this tends to come back to us as inflation as well so almost certainly we will see uh uh some more significant inflation than we otherwise would um but we haven't seen the war spread more widely yet uh so nacho any any thoughts on uh on you know, reward this from the perspective of AI uh, or healthcare or the innovation economy? Uh, Yeah, I think that, well,
1: um, one of my main concerns, let's say, it's related with the fact that Israel in particular has a very big uh, innovation ecosystem and a very big academic system as well, which the the state is investing. In lots of, of money on, on research and development. So I think that this will certainly impact the, the startups that are funded on on Israel. Um, I have more like a philosophical concern as well in this in this conflict. It's really a pity that after a disaster like the pandemic, we as a world are suffering these these wars. It's, it's ridiculous in my opinion. Uh, I hope that the situation is stabilized at some point, but um, yeah, I think that the, the the main effects that we will see, I mean, macroeconomically speaking, as you mentioned, will be around inflation and these kind of things. But also, we we should think as well about the companies that are located there and that will struggle under this situation.
0: Uh, so, yes, I, I, I agree with that. Um, so next is that we had, and, and by the way, the, the way that inflation is works is that um, in the innovation economy is that uh, over the last seven quarters, we've seen the US Fed has raised rates at a rate that is faster than any time in history. It raised rates more back in the early 80s by a greater amount, but it was slower. Um, and uh, the raising of rates has, created a lot of uncertainty for investors. So you have young companies are ready to go and they want to raise money and then they can't raise money from VC investors. Uh, uh, And the Fed is raising rates because inflation was getting out of control and it tames inflation by raising rates. And so now that the Fed, before this war broke out, the Fed had raised rates faster than ever before and there was a debate, is the Fed gonna stop raising rates or is it going to lower rates? And many market participants really wanted the Fed to lower rates, um, And uh, but the Fed is only gonna lower rates if it thinks inflation is under control. Um, so now with a second war um, breaking out, uh, there's a greater chance of more inflation, which means the Fed may act more conservatively. It could raise rates further, it could not, lower rates, um, but the Fed may act more conservatively and is less likely to rapidly lower rates. Um, so then the next is that we, we saw the Fed uh, had, a, had one of its regular meetings. These are called the Fed Open Market Committee meetings. Um, and they came out and announced that uh, they are um, keeping rates flat. So currently the Fed is, is guiding the US federal funds rate which is often called the risk-free rate, to 525 to 5.50%. That means any other kind of rate that we see for mortgages or whatever is always going to be significantly higher than that. That's the risk-free rate. Um, and the NASDAQ was up a point on the news. I think that the expectation was they would either hold steady or they would raise rates by a small amount, 25 basis points. They'd raise that that range that I cited by 25 basis points. And the Fed came out as uh, doing nothing. I actually think that that the smart money was betting the Fed would raise rates by twenty-five basis points, and, and the Fed did something. So this is uh, a little more aggressive on the Fed's part, meaning that they at that at the point they made this decision, they were not as worried about inflation in the future. If they were worried about inflation, they would have raised rates by twenty-five basis points. So the Fed has also told us that between now and the end of December, they might still raise rates one more time. If they did that, people think that would be by 25 basis points, which is considered to be a small raise. So uh, all in all, that's that that's a good sign for the economy, considering the alternatives. And as I say, the NASDAQ, which is at about 13,000, was up one, one full point on the news. Um, so that seems to suggest that there is not a lot of concern about inflation. Um, and, uh, uh, and that the FED is not about to rapidly raise rates further, which would be very bad for the innovation economy if they did. Uh, uh, Nacho, any thoughts on, on that?
1: Um, to be honest, no. I think that um, all these situation will basically push the world into a new recession cycle, probably. And uh, we will see that this recession cycle will definitely affect the, the investors landscape. And in particular for startups, I think that probably they will struggle with uh, getting funding for their projects. So um, it's the moment to be smart in investment. In, uh, and I think that the startups will need to find business models and, and, and way to to take advantage of the funding that they already have. We have already seen some layoffs and uh, that's really sad, but um, I I think that this will certainly reshape the way in which the the startup companies are working right now. They will probably need to find nearshoring approaches to hire people and, uh, and reduce the costs. Uh, so we will see things like that happening probably due to all these instability in due to the war and due to the increased rates
0: yeah so you, so you know usually the way that the economy works is that you have uh expansions, so that's a boom and then you have uh contractions and that's a recession and a bust uh and We've never been able to escape this cycle, so we're always at some point in the cycle, and you usually know what comes next. Like if you're if you've been in expansion for a long period of time, that usually means you've got a contraction and a recession coming. And in the U.S., and then oftentimes governments will intentionally, if if um, if it's well, if it's universally recognized that we've entered a recession then governments will stop their regular business and they will put together a stimulus package and they'll put that spending out there. And the idea is that at a time when other actors are spending less, when corporations are spending less, when households are spending less because of a recession, the government's gonna be counter cyclical and put out and show confidence and spend money uh, to fill in the gap, that's the, the stimulus. And in the US, people have been saying now for over a year that we were coming to the end of an expansion, and we would we would go into a recession, and then we were not going into a recession. So people were puzzling and scratching their chins and saying, you know, why aren't we going into a recession? And I think the thesis is that we are the U.S. government is spending so much money on war and one cause or another that it has almost taken that stimulus, which usually only happens after it's universally agreed that we're in a recession, and it's effectively spending that money right now which in turn is preventing us from going into a recession or another way of looking at it is that it's a recession for some people but it's not a recession overall especially if you're a recipient of government spending it's not a recession for you Um, but it's a recession for, for other people but when you average it out it looks like we haven't entered a recession yet and recessions are really bad for the innovation economy because It means that your buyers, so in digital health, most of the buyers are big companies. They're they're big hospitals. They're buying tech from you. They're big payers. They're buying tech. They're they're, they're big pharma companies. They're buying tech. Um, And uh, in recession, they feel poor and they cut back non-essential spending. Um, And so that means if, if you're trying to be innovative and develop new products and find new markets to sell them into, the direct effect of that is it's really bad because your buyers um, uh, you know, buy less. The indirect effect is that you may be able to find special opportunities. So if you have tech that cuts costs, you may now be able to uh, find someone who really needs to cut costs and who is gonna make a change uh, during a recession they wouldn't make during boom times. But, but overall, it, it, uh, recessions are bad for the innovation economy. Um, so uh, let's see, any, any other thoughts on recessions, Nacho? And, and do you think so? You're you're not in the U.S., but do you have any sense as to whether the U.S. is about to go into a recession, or Argentina is, or the globe is? Um,
1: my my feeling is that the entire world is entering in that in this phase. Argentina is now experiencing a a, a stagnation period, let's say, not a, not a recession. Uh, We are struggling with big macroeconomic problems like inflation. We have like 140% of inflation annually. It's insane. I think that we are like the second country in the world in terms of inflation, and we are struggling with that. Uh, But again, as I said before, I think that all these wars create macroeconomical instabilities, and these instabilities usually are difficult to to cope, especially for low- and mid-income countries. Uh, which have uh, an innovation ecosystem as well. We have a pretty strong innovation ecosystem in Argentina, for example, and we are already seeing that effect of retraction of the venture capitals. And uh, yeah, I think that at at least for the innovation economy, this is going to be uh, a tough year, let's say, what remains of the year and probably the first quarter of the next year. So we'll see, I hope things improve in the upcoming months.
0: So the the next we'll look at is in the U.S. um, we had a a heralded fall with the possibility of the IPO window opening in the U.S. So there's a capital food chain where first you have seed investment, then you have venture investment, series A, series B. Then you start to get growth equity and private equity, series C, D. Then you get crossover rounds before an IPO and then an IPO, and then people who make returns, like ideally they'd make a return of over 100% having put their money in for seven years or so, uh, they then take that money and they put it back into, into venture capital. Um, and so for six or seven quarters now, we've had a closed IPO window. Um, and there was uh, there was very much an effort on the part of, of Wall Street banks uh, and, and companies to test the waters and to IPO. And so we saw a number of these tests of IPO, like Birkenstock, the famous uh, sandal maker, would and Carta, the Mediterranean restaurant, IPO'd, and there were also some healthcare uh, IPOs, uh, and uh, uh, and so now the the verdict is 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 in, and and, and what you want to see happen with uh, with these test IPOs is you want to see the stock price go up maybe fifteen percent or so, and then stay up. That's all that you want. And if if several companies do that and that happens successfully, uh, then uh, dozens of companies will IPO. And in the case of digital health, we, we would expect some tech companies to IPO. Um, uh, and uh, and if they did well, then because digital health companies are usually software companies, and so they're they're viewed by the street as being similar to tech companies. Um, and then if they did well then you'd see many digital health uh, unicorns and um, leading digital health companies uh, seek to, to IPO. And so um, now what's happened instead yeah. is that a number of these uh, IPO trial balloons went down um, and the market reception was not was not very good. Uh, and this certainly could have been affected by the war among other things. Um, uh, and so, uh, now we're hearing some news that Waystar, so Waystar is a large healthcare revenue cycle management company, software and services for hospitals mainly. Um, they announced uh, that they were postponing their IPO due to market turbulence. Also, there haven't been any IPOs in the last week or so that, I, that, I, that I've been following. Um, so that, that basically, that means that the, the IPO window has, has fizzled out. Uh, unfortunately um, now that would have been very valuable to keep that there's a lot of illiquidity and a lot of of companies being stuck uh, because the IPO window is closed and so unfortunately you know we're not seeing the, the IPO window open up uh, so um, for my own part uh, I I think that um, there's a there's a big thesis out there, everyone's asking the question, when will VCs who have money start making a higher volume of investments? That, that's a big question. A lot of CEOs are asking. And I think that the conventional wisdom on that answer is that they're not going to step up their investing for under, under four quarters. Uh, and I've been very optimistic. I've been saying on a contrarian, as a contrarian, I've been saying, no, I think we will see them start to pick up in the next two or three uh, quarters. Um, so sooner than that. Uh and I think that this failure of the IPO window to open makes me makes me have less certainty, less conviction about um a sp- spring happening, spring for, for fundraising happening sooner. Um so uh not sure. Do you have any thoughts on um uh you know on the fundraising environment uh, for, uh, for young companies? Yeah, I think that um this
1: uncertainty variable that you raised before, um, I think it has. You have like two sources of uncertainty in this case. On the one hand, you have the risks associated with the instability of the market, and on the other hand, you have the inst- the, the the uncertainty or the risk associated to the 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 investment itself. You know, the company in which you are investing. So I think that I totally agree with you with the fact that uh, we are seeing venture capitals like staying with their money and not investing as much as we have seen a few months ago or a few quarters ago. But uh, I have seen some reports uh, showing that the pace is still the same for certain verticals and for very specific technologies. AI is one of those. Uh, We are seeing the healthcare industry as, as let's say as a big set we are seeing a subset of companies that are still receiving funding especially those dedicated to value-based care or to or, or with diagnostics and therapeutics so um, and and most of these companies that are getting investment are based on uh, AI technologies so I think that, the market is like trying to find the best way to reduce the uncertainty, and one way to reduce that is by putting the money in those technologies that are showing very, very good results, and in those particles that, regardless the instability of the economy, are always giving value to customers. So yeah, I'm- that,
0: that that that's very interesting, and we're, and we're seeing that in the U.S. too, which is that uh, true big innovations are still getting funded which is which is good news even though many other areas have seen the volume of funding fall a great deal Uh, so interestingly um, you know the um, we've seen the number of deals in series a and series b go down um, and but then there's been a barbell barbell uh, as in there's been Significant amount at the early stage, seed stage, in AI companies in healthcare, um, and then if you go to Series C, there have been some stories of more investment in Series C, but that's with safe companies. So not not every company, but VC's are saying, I feel I feel a lot of uncertainty. I'm very uncertain about making investments, but I know I can. But And so i'm avoiding the middle of the barbell but i'm investing at the two ends of the barbell i'm putting money in seed because this is a really powerful uh new technology ai and i'm putting some in series c because those companies are already cash flow break even so default they're going to live and so i can put some more money behind them for growth Um, whereas i'm very concerned about these series a and b companies which are cash flow negative and uh, so anyway, so this, I, I've heard some reports of, of that we're seeing a kind of a barbell um, in fun, in fundraising. Um, so next, uh, industry reports. Uh, did you see any reports come out in the last week in, in healthcare or in your sector that you want to call attention to our audience? Uh, not
1: anyone in particular. I, I have seen one, but I think that you mentioned it in your previous show. Um, I I think it was the Rock Health Capital and uh, the Rock Health Capital report. It it was super interesting and I I would definitely recommend the the audience to uh, take a look at it uh, because it was, as I said before, it was really interesting to see how we are, if you analyze the numbers, there was a drop in the investment. But if you analyze some specific fields, you still see that the investment and the flow is uh, keeping steady. So uh, that's the that, report that I that I would recommend.
0: That, that's great. So every quarter, Rock Health puts out a fundraising report. They make available free to the public, and you can you can find it on on the Rock Health website. Um, so we have a question from our audience from Jenny who asks any thoughts on the pharmacists strike um, and so yes yeah, so th- th- there's currently a pharmacist strike um, uh, going on in the US and this is this is quite unusual I haven't heard of a pharmacist strike before um, there's real um, pain from inflation which is not necessarily made up for by employers paying higher salaries employers are really trying to what employers want to do is they want to say oh that inflation was temporary uh, and it came to an end so therefore we don't need to boost compensation and, and salaries um, but nevertheless that took a big bite it took a 10 or 15 percent bite out of people's standard of living and so pharmacists are striking and you know I, uh, when you look at uh, labor action in the US has not been very strong or effective in a long time. But now we have a new reason, which is inflation. And we're seeing that some of these strikes are getting what they want. So we're seeing a strike threatened or happening in the auto industry. So there's legitimate grievances that are not being addressed. And we're seeing uh, some striking workers getting what they're asking for um, in other parts of the economy. So I think that the pharmacists have a chance, and that we'll see more of this. Now, um, it's you know it's not fair for pharmacists to take a 15% haircut, uh, and you know they ought to be able to get it back. But if you get into a cycle of inflation keeps being strong, um, and then workers keep striking to get their compensation back up, um, then that actually uh, creates Uh, a much worse inflationary phenomenon in in the economy. So there's a a term economists use when we have inflation of 1%, 2 3% in the US um, against a background of not having much inflation in the past. That's called creeping inflation. And in general, people don't care about creeping inflation. When you start to get higher inflation than that, so 4%, 5% or higher, um, then it's called galloping inflation, uh, and uh, suddenly um, participants in the economy, like, uh, start raising their prices frequently. Uh, you know, makers of consumer goods raise their prices, makers of you know, business owners raise their prices, workers demand higher uh, salaries, um, and that can get out of control. That that can uh, lead to permanent inflation that can't be tamed easily it can lead to inflation growing higher so creeping inflation is not a big problem galloping inflation can be an enormous problem and can get out of control um, and so uh i i wish the pharmacists the best um uh and but i but i also hope this doesn't lead uh, if everyone negotiates their salary up. That can lead to us moving into galloping inflation. Um, so lastly, I think there's also other reasons. Economists, and uh, sorry, pharmacists in the US are actually upset for a lot of reasons, not just salary. Um, uh, they're often paid on a, on a by the pill basis. Um, and they found that to be a very, um, it, it's been adversely affected by a number of changes in healthcare. They'd like to be paid on, say, a visit basis. Uh, uh, doctors are paid on a visit basis. Dentists are paid on a visit basis. Um, they'd like to uh, be and but the, the being paid on a per pill basis has uh, caused them a lot of a, a lot of uh, of of troubles over the last ten plus years. Um, so uh, and that 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 probably is not going to be resolved by this by this labor issue. But a lot of pharmacists are. Very unfulfilled in their in their careers, and they've been not shy about announcing that to the world. So, uh, Nacho, any thoughts on the pharmacist strike? I was not aware about these
1: pharmacists strike, and it, uh, it, uh, I found your point really interesting. <clears throat> At the same time, I have to admit that I have a natural bias to be always in favor of the workers. So, uh, go go there, pharmacists, and get what you what you want um but yeah i was not aware about this situation I, I, I was aware about other strikes from other industries but not about this one
0: so um next uh, and for our audience um we're going to talk about which if you, if, you, if our audience knows any industry reports that you want us <clears throat> to reflect on feel free to type it uh in the chat um and now we're also going to move on to um Uh, news stories and trade journal news. Um, So, and for our audience, if there's any news stories that you want us to react to, please also put that uh, uh, in the chat. Uh, So, I guess the the first um, news story I'll I'll call out is that uh, in prior shows, I've raised the theme of consolidation happening. Um, And I'm seeing more and more evidence point to a coming wave of consolidation. So. In digital health, we've had 1,400 companies in the U.S. start since 2009. That was the end of the global financial crisis and the beginning of the Fed's zero interest rate policy. And increasingly, what we're seeing is that uh, with the Fed raising rates recently, that was the end of the zero interest rate policy, and it made capital harder to acquire. And so companies that were not thinking of selling themselves before, young innovative companies, they're now thinking of selling themselves before. And acquirers who looked out and said, the prices of those young companies are just too high, 20 times forward revenue or higher than that, that's just too high. Um, Those acquirers are now looking and the the prices are falling of companies. Multiples have have fallen a great deal. They've fallen in some cases 50% or 80% or 90% based on public comparables. And so at those new prices, that now consolidated are saying that it, it makes sense uh, to buy those companies. Also, markets are maturing, which usually leads to diff- to buyers wanting uh, you know a richer suite of products, which which then implies you need to have a consolidation. So I'm, I'm still I think this theme is correct that we're going to start to see consolidation happening. Um, also, many of those young companies. They've belt tightened, but they're gonna start running out of money over the next uh, six to 12 months. And so they're gonna start thinking, we're we're gonna run out of money. It's gonna be hard to raise the next round. Um, We accept that valuations have fallen. We We were unhappy about that before, but now we accept that valuations have fallen. So we'll try to sell ourselves. So a lot of factors are coming together to support this theme of consolidation. But also a theme of shakeout. So shakeout is when a company shuts. It's when you have too many companies doing the same thing in a, in a subsector, and the weaker ones wind up closing down with, without a successful sale. Um, and so here we're actually seeing one of the one of the biggest uh, announcements so far, which is that this week, uh, Olive AI, um, with CEO Sean Lane, um, uh, which had raised. Uh, over 848 million uh, in the last um, 10 years, uh, backed by Drive Capital. It just announced this week that it is shutting down. Uh, and so I think we're, we're gonna see more companies shut down in this shakeout, and we'll also see a consolidation happening at the same time. So uh, Nacho, any thoughts on on the consolidation in the digital health sector and also a shakeout? Not really. No. So then, um, uh, let's see. Uh, we have a, a a section here on um, takeaways from the from the health conference. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to uh, to mention on that? Uh,
1: yes, um, we were there for the first time in our history as a company. It was a it was a really interesting event to be. I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend myself because I was attending another conference, a scientific conference in, in Vancouver by that time. But Maria Victoria de Santiago Vico, our leader of product, she was there attending uh, with a team from Ironcoder. Uh, we had a booth on the Scale Health Pavilion and it was a great opportunity to know a lot about the startup ecosystem there in. I always call it HLTH, you know, instead of health, I I have like this tendency to call it that way. Um, And and we have seen uh, some common denominators, you know, some some common interest around AI, lots of questions around uh, how generative AI will impact things like the pharma industry in terms of drug discovery. We can talk later on about that specific topic. Uh, but it's like the community is seeking how generative AI could impact in, in drug discovery, in clinical trials, acceleration, in, in workflow assistance, and also in, in assisted diagnostic tools, how we can craft better diagnostic tools using generative AI. Which I think is not a good idea to use generative AI for that purpose, but we could discuss that later on. Um, there's also interest around AI transparency, which is one of the, of the things that I'm more obsessed about, you know, how to make AI models more transparent to the users and how to avoid algorithmic discrimination, which is one of the of the most important issues that we are experiencing right now uh, around the AI. And uh, there was a discussion that was organized by Arian by Coder uh, to talk about trust and transparency and explainability and the importance of that. And it was great to see a big audience on that, on that keynote. And, uh, well, there were other topics that were interesting as well, like equity in health, which is a big deal, you know, how we can improve the, the system so that underrepresented populations can have access to a much better healthcare system and, um, and how we can, for example, use data and AI to reduce the gap that we always see between these, uh, these populations and, and the richer parts of the, of the population. And, um, another interesting fact was that for the first time we, we opened a a series of grants, uh, with Ari encoder. We wanted to help startup companies to start like redesigning their products or thinking about how to incorporate AI in their products. So we opened a, a series of grants and we got lots of interest. We got more than 20 companies applying for these, for these grants. Uh, so we are about to announce who are the winners of the of the grants. So follow us in, in social media to know the winners in the upcoming weeks. Uh, and probably in, in the near future we will organize a next round of grants. So if you want to apply, you can reach us at health at ironcoder.com by email. And you can apply with your own with your own company for the next round of grants that we will deliver.
0: So that that's great. I I don't know any other companies like you guys offering grants right now. So that that's fantastic. And so that that's your reshape health grants. And that's for a for uh, what is this for AI products in healthcare?
1: Any company, any startup company in healthcare that wants to improve their products, their digital products, or that wants to incorporate AI at some point on these on these products. That's that's the grant. That's uh, the design
0: that we made for the for the grants. That's great. Um, so next, uh, for time reasons I'm, I'm gonna skip to conferences. So um, so for our audience, if you are hearing of conferences, um, uh, you know uh, and you want us to review them to give you a mini review of the conference, feel free to type them in the messages. And we actually have a remark from Nalina, Thank you, Nalina, and it says, thoughts on executive order for responsible ai so that's really great um and we actually we actually have those thoughts and we're, we're coming to that so thank you nalina um and then two of our audience members have remarked on uh so-called pharmageddon, pharmageddon being um uh that cvs and walgreens may face this a strike beginning of hundreds of pharmacists this week um so i like that the term pharmageddon, and I've heard that used in a couple of different ways. Every once in a while, the pharma industry faces a big patent cliff when their, their drugs go from being on patent and, and high price to off-patent and low price. And that 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 and there's there's a a generalized cliff of those every every few years, and that sometimes is called pharmageddon. And pharma either has to acquire innovative biotechs or cut back staff a great deal in that context. Um, And so, but but now now we're hearing it applied to the threatened strike uh, here. So, let's see. Um, uh, And uh, uh, so, yeah, we just have more remarks uh, on you know CDS reported earnings today, and they've noted they invested a billion dollars in wage growth this year. That's interesting. Uh, And attrition levels have been flat, so they're not seeing high attrition. So uh, and they and so uh, uh, thank you that that, that, that from another one of our um, uh, our guests Patrick so thanks for that Um, so thinking about upcoming conferences um, one intriguing conference is that uh, and I I hadn't heard about this until yesterday is that the UK is hosting an AI safety summit today uh, and the host is Rishi Sunak who is the prime minister of the UK. And Elon Musk is attending. Um, And Kamala Harris uh, from uh, Kamala is, is attending from the US. And intriguingly, it's at Bletchley Park in the UK. Some of you are saying, hey, I've heard that name Bletchley Park before. Bletchley Park was the site where Alan Turing built the Enigma machine that decoded the German code uh, the German Enigma code during World War II. Um, uh, and it led to, among other things, uh, knowing Germany's strategy for attacking uh, the city of Kursk in Russia in the world's largest tank battle, so the, so the Russians knew that, the German strategy in advance. Uh, and it, it also predicted which British cities would be bombed by the Luftwaffe, allowing Britain to send up Spitfire fighters to. Uh, and know in advance where those bombers would be. Um, so they put it at a, at a very historic site. Um, and I think Elon Musk, uh, and, and we're raising this particular topic of this summit um, for two reasons. One is that this show is about AI and the conference is about AI safety. And also we had um, President Biden released a, an executive order about the safe and responsible use of AI recently. And we'll talk more about that. Um, and also, um, So uh, Elon Musk, who's attending and speaking at the event, Um, I think he is a strong advocate that AI can be very unsafe in the future and very damaging in the future, um, and that therefore it must be controlled and regulated. Um, And so, uh, anyway, so that so, and he's speaking at that as well. So, um, uh, Nacho, did you know about this conference before yesterday, Uh, and and do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, I learned about this conference yesterday when I've seen the news
1: about the, the the executive order issued by the U.S. government. So I was not aware about that. Um, I think it's great, you know, the, for these events to happen. At some point, we need to regulate AI. We can talk about that later on, but uh, I think that these events needs to happen more and more frequently. As we, you know, organize ourselves to design a trustworthy set of laws and regulations to control the, the AI developments. Uh, on the other hand, as a small comment, I would like to say that uh, I, I'm not 100% sure with this comment about, you know, the doomsday that is associated with AI and and that stuff. I I personally don't believe that we are at the verge of seeing Terminator knocking at our door and killing us all. Uh, We are far away from that point, Uh, but I think that AI has risks associated, especially with, for example, social media, fake news, things like that, biases, uh, algorithmic discrimination, or even things like, you know, the algorithms that are embedded in TikTok or these social media platforms that uh, suddenly they you know, they become like a pacifier. You end up using that tool again and again and again, because these algorithms are customized to recommend the videos that you are eager to see more and more. So I think that having a set of rules and an environment that is trying to control the way in which we deploy these algorithms and the social impacts that these algorithms have, I think it's a, it's a very important topic. So I really hope
0: that these conferences start to happen more frequently. That's great, very interesting. And so for our audience, by the way, uh, who's unfamiliar with the Terminator reference, so every time AI safety mm-hmm. comes up, everyone always has to talk about the, the Terminator movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Skynet. And so the science fiction story of Skynet is that uh, the US Air Force, this is, this is in a fictional universe, um, builds Skynet to control its weapons so as to be able to defend itself from, it controls the US Air Force's weapons to defend itself from an attack by the Soviet Union and strike back in the event of an attack by the Soviet Union. And then Skynet, the, the processing power of Skynet is increased by the Air Force over time. At a certain point, it becomes self-conscious, as in it becomes its own living organism with its own utility function and its own sense of, of, of wanting to act for itself and when it becomes self-conscious in, self-conscious in a split second um, it realizes that it is there's a, more of a threat that it, it would be shut down by the US Air Force because it would be replaced with a subsequent product than that it would be blown up by the Russians uh, And so it decides that to sur- that to ensure its own survival it has to use the power of its weapons, to destroy its own Air Force because it will survive, but the, the US Air Force will not survive if it attacks itself with its own weapons. And so it instantly unleashes that attack. Um, and so that is the, uh, the fear that uh, a future artificial intelligence, a future our Art, general artificial superintelligence will be unaligned with human interests uh, and more powerful than than humans, who won't be able to stop it or something. So, that's I'm sure that I'm sure they're talking about about that issue. But there's also more mundane issues like, um, uh, like you know, preventing bias or something. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the next is I'll, I'll just call out. There's um, uh, the American College of Health Executives is having a healthcare innovation summit in Boston tomorrow. Um, So, tickets are $400. This is a very good overview of innovation in healthcare delivery in Boston. Um, And uh, I spoke with the organizers and they gave a 10% discount off the ticket price for our audience with the code Wardell10. So, if you use the code Wardell10 and you're in Boston, you want to go to this conference, um, you can get a 10% discount. uh, And you can find the ACHE Healthcare Innovation Summit. On Eventbrite, you could just look up uh, ACHE Healthcare Innovation Summit on Eventbrite, enter the discount code WARDELL10. So the the next conference is uh, the CNS Summit. So I have a lot of friends in pharma, and my friends in pharma love this summit. And so my question is, is this, and they, they will literally recommend to their friends go to this summit. So the question is, is this a good summit for the people in the innovation economy to go to? And this is coming up November 8th through 12th in Boston. Um, and it's, a, it's very much a national and global conference. Uh, so, and CNS stands for Collaborating for Novel Solutions Summit. And so I looked into this conference more, and this is a conference for life science executives, often from big companies, so from big pharma and big biotech, also from CROs, um, uh, and they tend to be on the clinical side. The clinical and discovery side, but they're not on the commercial side of that, uh, and uh, and they so um, uh, and so uh, that's the kind of conference this is, and so what I'd say is that if if you're in pharma tech and you sell into the clinical side, you sell clinical trial automation software or you sell uh, drug discovery AI software, this could be a good. Conference to go to, but I, I don't think it's as good as as the bio conference and the DIA conference, which are excellent conferences to go to. And I would go, there's, there's some investors there. I'd go and try to see if there's pharmatech investors there. And I would go to try to meet with uh, with pharma executives who are on the clinical side, talk about problem set issues um, in that sector. Uh, so th- those are two of the reasons I would go to see if it's worth it. Um, so uh, Nacho, any, any thoughts on the ACHE conference or the CNS summit? I didn't know those conferences,
1: to be honest, so I don't know. And it's a pity because we are traveling to Boston on Sunday, so I'm missing it. But uh, yeah, I think that every conference is always a, a great opportunity to to know people, even if it's a scientific conference, you know, um, because as you, as you mentioned before, there are really interesting opportunities for doing businesses associated with basic research and, and, and clinical research. So uh, yeah, I would
0: recommend to, to attend to, to these conferences. So then there's also the AI in healthcare and pharma summit coming up. So um, I have heard this conference recommended by people who are in AI in healthcare uh, that they're going to this this is november 14th to 15th in boston um so the ai in healthcare and pharma summit um and the price on that is is about a thousand dollars um for that conference uh and uh, so i don't know this this conference but there's not that many conferences that are focused exclusively on ai uh, in healthcare so um so but i i don't have a view as to whether people in the innovation economy should go to this conference or not um, then there's also uh, the Giant Health event is coming up. So this is in London, and it calls itself uh, Europe's largest, most valuable two-day international festival of health tech innovation. So that's interesting. I don't really know European conferences, but if I were in in the UK in digital health, uh, I might go to this to meet investors. So I, I, if I maybe I'm not I'm not in downtown London, let's say, but this is an opportunity to go to downtown London write off to all the VCs that you know, tell them you're going to this conference, and you can meet them in their London office, or you can meet them at the conference. Um, And you could probably get, you know, four to eight meetings per day, is what I would shoot for at this two-day conference, and leverage it to meet meet with VCs. Some VCs at conferences, they're in meeting mode, so they might be hard to reach uh, in a given month, but then they go to a conference and they want to meet the companies that are at that conference. And so it's it's a good way to to sort of leverage to get a a meeting more easily um, at an event. So that's what I would try to do with the giant uh, health event. And that's December 4th to 5th in London. So Nacho, any thoughts on on, uh, the AI in healthcare and pharma summit in Boston and the giant health event?
1: Yeah, actually, the, this AI in Healthcare and Pharma Summit, uh, we were reviewing the, the, spe- the lineup of the speakers that will be delivering keynotes and, and doing lectures. And I think it's really interesting. the The lineup is really interesting for investors and also for innovators to get an idea about the kind of things that can be done using AI, you know especially for those companies that already have a consolidated product, but they want to add new features based on AI. I think this is a great opportunity to hear some success stories and to also uh, learn a little bit more about the technical hiccups and the technical details that are around AI. I think it's a, it's a great conference to attend. I would suggest the, the audience that if they are seeking for you know, inspiration to improve their products, to attend to this conference.
0: That, that's great. Uh, so then, also coming up is the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco, the second week of January, and the Vive Conference in Los Angeles, February twenty fifth to twenty eighth. So, in the innovation economy in a, in the U.S., the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference has historically been a very important conference to go to. Um, people love it and they hate it. It's a very unusual conference. Um, it's unusual because uh, J.P. Morgan is hosting a small conference in one hotel. But everyone else, thousands of additional people go, even though they don't have tickets, and not going to get tickets just to meet in hotels that are nearby in Union Square, San Francisco. Um, And so that means people are rushing around to meetings and it's cold and rainy um, uh, and they're not going to programming uh, because they're not invited to the conference. (laughs) Uh, So uh, now um, many people have chosen to go to the um, uh, the HLTH conference in October in Las Vegas instead. And the HLTH conference is outstanding at having many parts of healthcare, consumer health, employer health, payer health, provider health, life science, tech, uh, many, many kinds of innovation in healthcare. And they're really good at getting these young companies and VCs to come, so that's great. But they're not great uh, at getting buyers to come and they're not great at getting executives of consolidators to come so that, that's a weakness of that conference it's also a young conference it's still growing and, and it's still figuring out what it is um, it's not a trade show though um, the jp morgan conference is known for getting a lot of the executives of consolidators there so you might sell your product to a consolidator or you might sell your company to a consolidator or you might get a sales channel partnership with a consolidator. But you, you tend to have, of the big companies in the US, you tend to have the CEO, the CFO, the head of the corporate venture fund, and the head of corporate development. Corporate development is the person that might buy your company or do a, or do a sales channel partnership with your company. They tend to go to JP Morgan. The people who don't go is you don't get general managers who who would buy your product. So oftentimes at these large companies, You'd have someone with a with a budget and signing authority who's not the CEO, who's the person who's who, you're a vendor and they're buying your product. So product buyers from from large companies from consolidators tend not to go to J P Morgan, um, but head of corp dev often does, CEO, CFO, head of investor relations, um, head of the corporate venture fund. They go to J P Morgan, and then a lot of VCs go, so that, that that that's great as well. So if you're a young company uh, and you missed health. Um, then you would go to meet with VCs, and you'd go to try to meet with with the head of corp dev, the head of the corporate venture fund, uh, maybe the CEO of this um, uh, of this uh, large consolidator in the sector. But a lot of young companies have said, "I met with VCs at the health conference in October in Las Vegas, so I'm not going to bother going to J.P. Morgan." So we're seeing, but the health conference in Las Vegas is definitely trying to be, you know the alternative, the better alternative to JP Morgan. Um, so, uh, Nacho, any thoughts on, on JP Morgan? Uh, I've never been there, so I, I don't have an
1: opinion, but I do agree in that HLTH is great and that is, is a very, very good option to meet venture capitals and other startups as well.
0: That's great. And then personal notices. So um, this is a chance for us to meet with our audience. Uh, And so here, um, so I'm hosting uh, the next Digital Health Boston Drinks Night uh, next Thursday. So Thursday, November 9th from 5.30 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel Bar. And the sponsor of the night is Arian Coder. uh, And the guest of honor of the night is Nacho Orlando, who's here on the call with me. Uh, And so at that event, we'll be hanging out and having drinks. um, And then we have a theme of the evening which is that uh, AI will replace your doctor in five years. Uh, so, uh, so, Nacho, you're on the hook for uh, giving us a provocative, uh, your provocative view on that topic uh, for that. Uh, so really looking fight... forward. Oh, that, that's great. Um, and then, uh, so to attend this, you register uh, at, if you go to stephenwardell.eventbrite.com, you'll find this event for November 9th, um, 530 to 830. You need to register. And then it's at the Liberty Hotel Bar, uh, which is um, uh, uh, which is at MGHT Stop in Boston that night. Um, and then also my next show is going to be uh, called Our Value-Based Future is Arriving Fast. That's on Wednesday, November 15th at 4 p.m. Uh, with my guest John Moore of Chilmark Health. So those are the, my personal notices. Not show any personal notices for you.
1: Yes, uh, we have a. It's more like a company notice, let's say. But uh, we are hosting a breakfast session on November seventh in our offices in in Boston, in one twenty five High Street, second floor. Um, The idea is to have, let's say, a, a session that we call it founder, ask me anything, it's going to be a breakfast. It's going to be free coffee and treats for the attendants. And the idea is to gather a few startup founders and have some discussions around AI, product engineering, and also help them in their requests on these three specific areas. So there are limited seats. So if you want to participate there, you can send us an email at hello at ironcoder.com. So yeah the goal is for everyone to be there and to talk a little bit more about these these technologies and see if there are different ways in which we can help them to accomplish their goals so I, I hope to see some of the of the people in the audience participating there
0: that, that's great and so and you are currently uh, in Argentina but you're flying up here uh, to Boston for the drinks night with me and the other people in the audience and also for, for these events as well. So thanks for making that, that big trip.
1: Thank you. Thank um, you for, for having me.
0: So we also have, uh, so Krishna in the audience has called out that there's a Hims AI event in healthcare conference uh, in San Diego in December. So that's very interesting. So HIMSS is the biggest trade show in provider tech. So so provider tech is software and tech companies that sell software and tech products and services into the hospital and medical practice and healthcare provider budgets. The hospital CIO budget, the medical practice uh, technology budget, the CFO's budget for revenue cycle management technology, that sort of thing. So Hamza is a is a great uh, organization, uh, and they tend to focus on healthcare delivery and provider organizations in healthcare. Um, and apparently, they're doing an event in San Diego in December. So thank you, Krishna, for um, for calling that out for us. Um, and uh, so I, I would say so. Something about HIMSS is that it is actually a trade show, whereas most of these conferences we're talking about have been investor conferences or um, health is an investor conference, JP Morgan is an investor conference, but HIMSS is a trade show. So you would expect at a, at a HIMSS event to find product buyers. Uh, you'd expect to find hospitals, people from the office of the hospital CIO, people from the office of the hospital CFO, people from medical practices who could make purchasing decisions on software products they go to hims events, um, so that's that, that's it's good to to get uh, events on your schedule where product purchasers would attend those events. Um, well, wait, So now we'll move on to our main topic, uh, which is checking in on AI in healthcare. And uh, the the first the first topic here is that uh, this week uh, Joe Biden issued an executive order on. Uh, AI responsibility and safety um, and so nacho can you tell us about about this order
1: yes uh, well first of all I think it's the, the the very first effort that is being made by a government to standardize or at least to to determine what is the safest pathway to incorporate AI, we still don't know if this is the ideal scenario. But still, it's very, very good to see that the governments are pushing this agenda. You know, I had the opportunity to go through the entire executive order, and it was really interesting to see some of the points that were raised by the academia. As I said before, I'm also part of the academia, so so I'm I'm wearing two hats here. And, uh, but, but it was really nice to see that some of the of the ideas that we were pitching in academia were transpiring into the into this executive order and i think that some of the points that i touched there in this uh, in this executive order will definitely impact the healthcare industry and the way in which companies are innovating with ai so i think it's it's fundamental to take a look at it some of the things that i have noticed that are the most important are for example the definition of new standards for AI safety and security. And by new, we should say that it's new because it doesn't exist yet. So that that's the point. And um, one of the things that are going to be pushed by the government is the advancing responsible use of AI in healthcare in particular. And one of the goals that the government have is to try to push AI as a good tool to develop new drugs for basically life-threatening diseases, but also drugs that are affordable for the people. So that's part of the agenda, and I think it's really nice to to have that written already as one of the government decisions. Uh, Also, I have seen that the Department of Health and Human Services will establish a safety program to receive reports about harms and unsafe healthcare practices involving AI. And not only for doing a diagnostic about these uh, unsafe decisions, let's say, but also to find out how to remedy them, which is also great for the the healthcare community. I have also seen as an important detail that uh, the executive order is pushing promotion of a fair and more open and competitive AI ecosystem which is great because we are seeing right now the big tech companies like Meta, Google, or, or OpenAI are kind of taking all the attention and taking all the innovation, or most of it, to be honest uh, and to be fair. So uh, it's good to see that the government is trying to push uh, small entrepreneurs and developers to, to to be also protagonists of this story. Um, also, there is an important point as well related with the fact that uh, companies that are big companies that are releasing AI products have to submit their test results to the U.S. government before the release of the tool, which is super important as well. My only concern with this specific point is that usually the governments or the states lack the professionals to analyze this information. And in this case, that creates sort of a, a, of a misunderstanding in terms of, of these analyses and regulations. I personally believe that the the most a uh, fair way to analyze this is by first releasing that to the public so that the academia and other companies can discuss or, or have a discussion around those test results. But again, as I said before, this is a first effort to regulate the field. So I think it's, it's really important. And also, there are some other many factors around, for example, watermarking the outputs of the generative AI solutions so that we can understand whether this piece of text, for example, was generated by an AI or was generated by a human. And that might sound like something that will not touch the healthcare industry, but I believe that in the times that we are seeing, these violent times of war, probably we will see more and more Threats around, for example, the the generative AI systems that will be used for writing prescriptions, drug prescriptions, or things like that. So, if there are vulnerabilities there, and we are unable to the, to watermark the, the 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 text that is produced by with a generative AI, then we are doomed. You know. So, I think it's it's interesting to see that the government is pushing that agenda. And also the, the, there, there are many topics as well, but the, the last one that I, w- that I would like to mention is the fact that <clears throat> they are pushing an, agen- an agenda around protecting privacy, but without compromising the fact that we need data for training our algorithms. So um, this is an important trade-off, you know, between how much we protect the data and how much we can use the data to create new innovative solutions. Uh, and I think that the fact that the government is going to support financially the development of new tools to allow training machine learning algorithms without compromising uh, the, the privacy of the, of the patients or the owners of the data, I think it's
0: very, very interesting and, 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 and it's quite important. So, um, you know, I think many members of our audience may have actually used um, OpenAI or Bing AI or BARD, and it feels a lot like a search engine, except it's not a search engine, it's an answer engine. It doesn't give you a page of links with, uh, to go to. It, it, it tries to write up an actual answer to your question. And so if, if you think about how search engines were regulated by the government, they were not really regulated by the government. So if you, if you go back uh, twenty years ago, you had um, you had young companies were uh, crawling and indexing almost the entire web, and then they were allowing people to do a search, which would then point them to a web page, and that turned out to be an incredibly powerful product for google it scaled very rapidly to billions of people and it made a huge amount of money uh, because they discovered that people were revealing buying intent by typing in a search question uh, and then they could match them with a product and they could charge for a lot for ads so that that's how google made and still made all of its money so huge product and the government basically said um, so it looks like a like a it looks like OpenAI or BARD or, um, uh, or Bing AI, but the government said, we are not gonna regulate that. And so it has had very little regulation, does not have much regulation uh, on it. But then you look at uh, atomic power and radioactive elements and nuclear and also atomic weapons, and these were developed um, you know, There's a lot of development in the 30s, and ultimately use of nuclear weapons in the 40s. Um, and then the government immediately said, this is an incredibly dangerous technology and we're going to regulate it very heavily. Um, and so, do you think if AI looks like a search engine which had no regulation, it doesn't, to me, look like uh, radioactive plutonium um, <laughs> to me, but the government is behaving like on a spectrum, it's closer to, to nuclear materials than to search engine. Do you think the government should be behaving this way? And why is it behaving this way? When it didn't uh,
1: hear- yeah, I, I personally believe that we are closer to plutonium, but not because there are lives at stake. It's not about that point, I think it's more about the, the, the social impact that AI is having already and will have in the near future. So I think that uh, being concerned about the usage of this technology is important and trying to push from the governments an agenda about being inclusive and being, uh, or, or at least forcing these AI tools to be trustworthy is, is definitely important. And you can think of it if you extrapolate these to other fields beyond healthcare, you know, you can, as I mentioned before, these algorithms are, are embedded already in TikTok or Instagram or things like that. They are deciding the things that your children look at, even yourself, the things that you are looking at when you use social media are controlled by an algorithm. So um we need to protect ourselves against that, you know because that has an effect, for example, in elections or in the decisions that we make and uh, and even in our own personalities. so I think that's very important. but at the same time, there are also other dimensions or other concerns related, for example with with bias and algorithmic discrimination that I Insist that is a big, big problem that we are already experiencing. Uh, I remember an example. The first time that I heard about this concept, I was doing my PhD by that time, and I remember uh, looking at a keynote by uh, a very renowned professor that 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 that's working on these topics, and she mentioned an example of a of a system that was developed to check your molds and detect if they if there were a risk of developing uh, skin cancer. And uh, this tool was working super decently, let's say, or it was accurate enough in a, in a test set. But when they deployed that solution, every time that it was used by an African-American person, it was failing. And this was because the, the algorithm was trained on images from a Caucasian population. So if you think about that, all these underrepresented minorities or populations are not getting the help or, or, or the service that they are expecting from an AI because this AI was deployed without being regulated. So, um, I think that is a, is good news that we are seeing the state, uh, doing an effort in this case to control the environment. I think that we shouldn't be paranoid at the same time. As I said before, we shouldn't think that a robot will knock at our door and will kill us all. Um, there, uh, but that's my position, you know. Uh, if, if you see, for example, I think that yesterday there was a, a huge argument between some of the founding fathers of the AI, of AI, Jan LeCun, uh, Geoffrey Hinton, and um, and I always forgot the name of the other, but they, they were like arguing, you know, and, uh, publicly on Twitter. Uh, about these, about the concerns that are associated, Yoshio Bencho, I remember the other name. And they were one against the other. One of them saying, Well, I, I personally believe that we should shut down AI. We shouldn't do open AI open source because people can use it for bad things. And other people were saying, Well, we need to open source AI because that will democratize the field and I will, that will help us to to protect ourselves against the risks associated. So again, it's a matter of, of thinking a little bit more about this and, and we will probably see efforts on one side and the other of the coin, let's say, uh, in, uh, as a conflict. But overall, I think it's a, it's good news to see that the state is like doing an effort to regulate this field.
0: So, um, and I've, I've heard an interesting other story about AI, um, which is, uh, you know, um, parents who are 50 years old today, they may have adult kids who are 20 years old who drive, and those, the parents can use a stick shift when driving, the standard stick shift, and the children have never driven a standard mm-hmm. stick shift, and only drive an automatic, and don't know how to drive a stick shift. That's that's the 20-year-old kids. And those 20-year-old kids, they may have kids, and those kids may never learn to drive Mm -hmm. um, uh, because the car will have AI navigation and may have lower accident rates. And so maybe that's a good thing, but uh, you could also imagine what happens if, uh, you know, there is an electromagnetic pulse that knocks out computer chips, uh, and then people... Don't have cars and can't drive, um, and uh, an example is that uh, in um, medical imaging and radiology and and uh, making diagnoses from medical images, um, you can now get uh, help, uh, AI agents that are better than doctors at those uh, at making diagnoses from medical images. They can look at more medical images and they can have a higher percent success rate than doctors. Um, but some of these AI agents can't explain themselves. So imagine if you had a, a cycle where AI agents got better and better for 20 years and they drove out of work all of the medical diagnosticians who uh, are no longer trained and don't know, are no longer current, uh, and but then the the diagnostic agent can't explain itself, um, and so that that would be so. A role for government would be to um, to sort of say, "There's a there's a we have a different interest here, which is that we need to cultivate systems that can explain themselves, uh, for example, um, uh, and maybe also not completely replace people. Somehow keep people uh, keep." Human decision makers who are who are trained in the loop or something, so that that that's another example uh, of uh, I'm not sure if that was addressed in this executive order, but it's an, another example of where you you probably wouldn't want to get to the point where um, you had uh, uh, inexperienced, unskilled people doing all the jobs like flying the airplanes and keeping the power plants running, um, with AI doing the hard work. And then, if AI were to fail, the people the people don't know how to how to step up. Um, so mm-hmm. anyway, so that's another another interesting issue. So so now, now I wanted to move on. You're a researcher in AI, so I just wanted to ask. Uh, you know, I think AI may be one of the most overused terms. Um, <laughs> I remember that when Microsoft Word processor came out, they had spell check, and so this is more than twenty years ago. And they called the spell check that was AI. It was powered by AI. It looked at your uh, wrongly spelled word, and it suggested a replacement word. And it, it used in the language of in the understanding of thirty of thirty years ago. It used the term "this is AI powered by AI." So we've been talking about AI for a long time. What is AI? What is machine learning? What what are these things? Um.
1: I, I really love that you brought that example. We we can talk later on about what kind of AI was hidden behind the curtain by by that time. Um, so uh, I always like to, to give a textbook definition when we talk about AI. You know, I, I, AI is defined as making computers to reproduce some of our cognitive abilities, like pattern recognition or learning any cognitive activity that we have as human slash animal, let's say because we are still struggling trying to make computers behave like animals. So, uh, but anyway, the, the, the whole idea is that instead of having to instruct a machine like with code, you know, to do something, we want the machine to be able to do it by itself. That's artificial intelligence. And machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence because we are, with machine learning models, we are making computers to learn basically from data. That's the main difference. But we can also think about the differences between AI and machine learning with an example. So let's say, for example, that we want to predict the evolution of a tumor given a certain therapy and given a certain type of tumor at the same time. Well, uh, an AI would be the algorithm that is able to forecast what is going to happen based on this information uh, automatically without having a human intervening on the process. And the machine learning algorithm is essentially the method that produces the model that is able to make these decisions. you know. And the way in which we do that right now, in the current form of AI that we use, these machine learning techniques, what we do is we collect data describing, for example, the, the, the patient demographics about the patient, uh, characteristics about the tumor that we can, for example, extract with a molecular test, or we can also uh, add features describing the, the treatment characteristics, and, and we assemble everything in a vector, essentially in a in, in, in a vector, and we feed the computer with that, and the machine learning algorithm basically learns the relationship between the output that we want to to get, in this case, if a patient, for example, will survive or not, and the and the inputs that we provide to the algorithm. So we end up getting uh, an AI, a model that is able to make those decisions by learning the the relationships between the inputs and the outputs. And there is another subset of AI and machine learning, which is deep learning. And probably people in the the audience already know about this, but I always like to bring this example to the the table. Deep learning algorithms are slightly different because for example, if we want to, uh, modify this algorithm that we mentioned before, so that instead of having to feed ourselves the characteristics that describe the tumor, we want just to provide an MRI scan, for instance, and learn and, and the prognosis based on that, then it's more complicated, you know, because we need to come up with all these handcrafted features describing the, the, the characteristics that are implicit on the image. Uh, on the contrary, if we use a deep learning algorithm, we are able to learn those properties automatically. So that's the richness of this. We eliminate the human bias introduced by the handcrafting procedure of the features. But instead of doing that, we provide a bunch of data and we make the computer learn automatically how to, how to predict that. So uh, I hope that's clear, but that's always the example that I give when, when I have to teach AI to my students.
0: I, I heard an interesting story, which was that, um, that you know, there's a, uh, a a clinic that did spinal surgery uh, collected a great deal of detail about every patient um, and they ran and humans have been analyzing this great data set for a long time and they've learned certain lessons. Um, uh, and then they had AI analyze it, and and AI found a, a relationship that no human had ever thought to look at before, um, and it was it was a very powerful relationship, and it was that uh, uh, back procedures are are significantly more likely to um, to have no benefit or to cause harm uh, if. The morning of the the temperature, of the morning of the procedure is very cold outside. Um, so this was in a this was in a northern U.S. state, um, uh, and so who who would think that temperature in the morning would matter? Uh, and and they the doctors themselves were stumped. What why would that matter? Um, uh, but nevertheless, you know, the AI was able to look at many things rapidly. And find what mattered, and came up with something that apparently mattered that no human would have would have thought. Well, let's look at that, uh, you know. So, uh, an, an interesting example of that. That, that that's great. Um, so, um, uh, and then, uh, I, you know, I think what's interesting about AI is we've been talking about AI for a very long time. Um, Science fiction writers have been writing about killer robots with AI for a very long time. Um, uh, But if you'd asked someone, but but suddenly a year ago, we had an enormous wave of new interest in AI. So something is different about AI. And if you cycle back five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, yeah, AI was a marketing buzzword, but many researchers would have told you five, 10, 15 years ago, that AI was going nowhere. That huge resources were poured into AI, and AI wasn't wasn't going anywhere. And so, that's a, an unusual situation for us to be in. And people have even have a term for this, and they call they call the last thirty years of AI research, not including the last year, but the last thirty years before that. They call that AI winter. Um, and now we're living through um, for a year. A.I. Spring. Um, And so what happened? What's different? Uh, Why are we suddenly? What was the what was the failed path we were on in the past? And why are we suddenly living in A.I. Spring?
1: Uh, It's it's really interesting to see the story of A.I., you know, always in perspective. Uh, As you mentioned before, A.I. has experienced winters before and we are now in a spring, which is good news, especially for us, for the people who work
0: with, with A.I. Um, so, I usually so you, like to. You, you committed to a field of study of AI when it was in winter, not knowing that you would your career would hit a spring. Exactly, I have seen the
1: bloom, let's say, but it was not a spring yet, the flower blooming. Um, so I I usually when I analyze the history of AI, I usually like to divide it like in, in three waves, let's say. The first way, the earliest wave, is related with the Dartmouth, this famous Dartmouth conference that happened in the '50s, I think, uh, where I think 12 experts, some of the of the big names of computer science that I studied when I was in the university doing my software engineering, um, uh, they were all assembled to ideate how to create an artificial intelligence. And they came up with a few ideas. So they said we should describe the world in terms of rules and facts, which is hilarious. You know, if you think about it, you can always model everything with rules and facts. You can say, well, the sky is blue. If the sky is gray and it's humid, then probably it's going to rain. So you can always define that. And it's just a matter of inputting those Rules and facts, and then doing some logics and, and uh, in logic inference on those on those databases, and uh, and that worked really well for some specific applications. What what they were they were calling these applications expert systems. They were systems that were designed for a specific task, and they were working really really well. For example, the the spell corrector in in, in Microsoft Office it was working great and there was no neural network involved no transformer architecture not not one of these trendy trendy models that we are seeing right now but the problem was the reductionism you know that we were like designing solutions that were crafted for a tiny specific problem but don't extrapolate to other to other applications and every time that these researchers were facing a big problem they realized that they were unable to get good results And that's when we entered in the first AI winter. And one of the consequences of this AI winter was that we were forbid to refer to the things that we were doing research about as AI. You know, when I was doing my PhD, it was always forbidden to refer to my methods as AI. No, you're doing machine learning, forget about AI. And now we are free to to mention that again. Uh, But anyway, right after that winter, we started to, try a different approach, in this case, based on statistical learning. The idea here was to take advantage of all the knowledge that we have from statisticians and, and from and mathematicians all around the world, and uh, try to come up with a different or an alternative way to to de- describe the, the, the world. In this case, it was basically take data and make models that learn from that data the properties of the world. And these these kind of solutions are the ones that explain 80% of the applications of ai that we are seeing right now all the recommender systems that we see in netflix or amazon all the all the all the algorithms that we used not all of them but 80% of them are based on these statistical learning properties and then we have a new boom of ai that has roots that moves all the way back to the 50s but still the, the let's say that the blooming started in 2013, when Alex Krzyzewski published the paper using convolutional neural networks to solve the problem of image classification. When that was done, we realized that we were able, that we were having for a long time, a model that was able to bypass human performance in these specific applications by far. And uh, since then, We started to use deep learning, which is the technology that we are using right now. And that came to fill up the gaps that we had from the classical methods of statistical learning. Um, You asked me about why we are experiencing a spring right now. I think that the reasons are three. One of them is the fact that we are collecting a huge amount of data all the time, especially in the healthcare industry. We have images, we have electronic health records, we we are constantly collecting data. So the fact that all that data is available makes all these models that are based on data blooming, essentially. The second reason is that we have computational resources right now. Even if you don't have uh, the money to pay for a a cluster of uh, GPUs and those kind of things that you need for training these machine learning models, you can always use Amazon Web Services, for instance, for doing that. So the access to these computational resources is letting us to analyze these vast amounts of data and train these models. And the third thing that I think is the one that we experienced since November last year is the fact that big companies are now publishing the models they are not just you know publishing a paper but they are also publishing interfaces to interact with the data and to uh, with the models sorry and to try them and that generates you know a reaction in the public because we are eager to see more and more about these ai models and then we have governments and industries investing more on this research and we get automatically new results that solve new problems and that gets the the spin, winning, uh, the the the, um, the wheel spinning. So um, yeah, I think that those are the main reasons why we are experiencing that. Plus, that we we made as a community a technological advancement a few years ago, which were the transformers, which has nothing to do with the robots that we have seen in the in the movies. It's just a neural network architecture, but that works lovely and that is being used for all these foundation models in computer vision. It's used also by these large language models that are hidden inside uh, chat GPT, for instance, and all these models combined allows us to to do multimodal learning, which is like super, you know, you can now ask questions about an image and get an answer that is correct. That's that's great.
0: And I, I've heard another factor, let me know whether you think this is correct or not, but I'll, I'll call it the gamer dividend. Um, so the gamer dividend is that um, the earliest computers were very expensive and they solved business problems and probably the fundamental use of computers was as a database uh, since the beginning. Um, and, and the chip they built to service this computer was a CPU chip, which is a serial chip. So the way that worked was you sent math, you sent math problems to the chip Big math problems, and it would do all the math problems one after another. You sent a big problem to the chip; it would take a little longer to have the chip solve the math problem. But you sent a small problem to the chip; it would take a shorter time to solve the math problem. And you sent them all in serial, one after another. Uh, but then along came the demand for better graphics, uh, and the serial chip was not a great chip for graphics because it, it would lead to lagging. People would be looking at their screen and and what the and part of the screen would get solved and then other parts of the screen would get solved. And then you'd you'd want the screen to change and it was just slow. So they developed a different kind of chip, which was initially very expensive compared to the old chip because so much investment had gone into the old chip. So if you remember old PCs, they were called like you know, the um, Intel 286 PC or the 386 PC, That were, those were old terms for computers. That was the CPU chip, which was a serial chip. Um, and the cost of that was was reduced greatly over time through investment by Moore's law. Um, but CPU chips weren't good for graphics. And so you needed a totally different kind of chip for graphics, which became known as a, as a GPU chip, a graphics processing unit uh, chip. And that was a massively parallel chip. And so the way that worked was that problems graphics problems were broken down into millions of tiny problems that were then all solved in parallel at the same time. And that was the kind of chip that was needed for better graphics. And so uh, CPU chips kept getting better and cheaper, and slowly graphics chips, which were always more expensive because they came along later, were getting better. And then a certain kind of buyer um, was willing to spend any amount of money for better graphics, and that was the gamer. So gamers (laughs) are typically, we're talking about like men aged like 15 to 30 who spend all their time on their computer and who are dreaming about buying a better graphics card for $1,000, which sounds you could buy a computer for much less than $1,000. But they wanted that, they needed that better graphics card. And because of that, there was a market to build generation after generation of GPU chips so that today GPU chips are enormous and cheap, or at least cheap, cheaper than the same would have cost a few years ago. And so I've, I've heard that modern AI uses GPU chips, and that's why NVIDIA, which is a maker of these GPU chips, is worth so much, and ARM, which also makes GPU chips, Went public and is worth a lot. Uh, is is that and so had so this is the gamer dividend. Had it not been for gamers locking themselves in their rooms on Friday nights and playing video games all the time, we would not have cheap GPU chips. So is that is that true? Should we give the gamers a, a golf clap for that? Yes, definitely, definitely,
1: and uh, and also Alex Krushchevsky as well, because this guy who, who resurrected the convolutional neural networks. Um He came up with this smart idea of taking advantage of this specific device, you know, for solving a problem that was associated with uh, convolutional neural networks, which was that they are super expensive to train. But now with parallel computing tools like GPUs, you can do it super efficiently. And another point about the price of GPUs that I think it's it's important to mention is that we, we were always seeing the price going down until we came up with cryptocurrencies. And after that, the crypto bros <laughs> wanted to use these uh, GPUs to mine Bitcoins and things like that. And since then, we have seen a rise in the prices, but now uh, we are seeing them go down again. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a funny part of the story as well.
0: Uh, so um, and then we have Shilpa is asking a question, and she asks, um, "What are your views on having a supranational organization charged to oversee AI and in healthcare?" Um, so that that could be a very good thing. It, 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 I think it, it depends on. Um, so that there there are there are trade-offs. I you know I think if we care about safety a lot, if we're concerned about safety, then then we might see national organizations and possibly UN-sponsored, supranational organizations overseeing AI in healthcare. But there's a big trade-off, and the trade-off is uh, that it can often harm innovation. Uh, So it can harm innovation simply because it blocks innovation. Uh, It can also harm innovation because when you have these national or supranational organizations, sadly, they very often get captured by incumbents as well so an example of that is uh, in the us the the u.s famously has what's called a loose banking system which is that uh, local authorities would allow you to start a bank so maybe you were a maybe you were a 50 year old real estate developer who was very successful you could start a bank um, and you would just get a, a license from the state of Arkansas to start a bank and that would be fine um, and we had we had a uh, and this means that in the U.S., banks are allowed to be loosely regulated. They're allowed to have low standards of capital, or they were allowed. And they can go bankrupt, uh, among other things. They, they, they can have problems. But it meant we had a, a lot of, banking was regional. We had a lot of banks. New banks were starting all the time. Old banks were closing down all the time. Uh, and uh, banking power was very local. Um, and, and if you got a meeting at a bank, um at a local bank Probably you were dealing with people who could make decisions they didn't have to go to a national person in San Francisco to make a decision um, and then we had complaints about this system there were too many problems, too many risks to capital and there was a national banking reform was passed and the promises of this reform was that it would fix all, all of the problems of the old system uh, and instead we got something very different we got a, we got a very um, strict system. And I think there's been like one new bank created nationwide since the passage of banking reform legislation. Uh, and that has enormously benefited incumbent banks who it turned out wrote the legislation because uh, they no longer face any significant competitors. And those national banks have gone and bought All the regional banks so now there's four big banks uh, in america uh, and they've all raised their prices uh, and consumers have no choice and when you if you need a bank loan and you go into a local bank uh in um you know in uh, illinois um then you're not dealing with someone who can make a decision they have to go to new york to get someone to make a decision it's not local anymore um and so uh, that that's been held up as an example of regulatory capture. Um, Once there was a central authority, the incumbents who had the money and who cared the most went and put forward regulations to address a crisis that served them and didn't serve the public. Um, And then the central authority was very pleased to be captured by the incumbents uh, and give the incumbents the regulations that they want. So uh, on the one hand, I I see, you know, there's a possible benefit of more safety uh, on the other hand, I, I would be worried about uh, about regulatory capture. So, um, and we're still at a very early stage and no one is saying that there's regulatory capture in AI yet. Uh, but people are concerned. Uh, Nacho, any thoughts on that?
1: Yes. Um, I don't know if I agree with the fact that regulating a field will limit the innovation. I think that is interesting to innovate under certain boundaries, you know, and being controlled, let's say. So I would say that of course some sorts of innovation will be stalled but some others will have the, the funding or the support that they are seeking so I, I'm I'm not against the regulation you know because I'm concerned about these damaging innovation uh, going back to the to the, the original question I personally believe that uh, we have seen already the experience Uh, During the pandemic, for example, we have seen that the World Health Organization was unable to regulate the the usage of the vaccines and the access to the vaccines. So I'm not very optimistic about having a supranational organism uh, controlling and overseeing AI in healthcare. Um, What I really believe that we should do is to learn from other examples. And we have, you know, all the pharmaceutical uh, industry there, and we can learn from those examples. That place is regulated. We cannot innovate and do any drug that we want. We have to be extremely careful. Uh, the pharma industry has a process for evaluating their 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 inventions. You know, their new drugs. They have to go a phase a, a phase zero, let's say a pre phase, phase one, phase two, phase three. They have to follow all these process, and we could do the same in with AI. You know, it's just. And, and it's not something that is being regulated supranationally, let's say, but uh it's let's say written in stone. Every country is always following the same rules. So I think it's more related with that. I think that we should do an effort internationally to come up with a series with a with a process, and then each nation can like create their own instance of these uh, of this process and apply that to regulate AI in their countries. Uh, I, I would say that this is the the way to to do it, and we should be extremely picky about who are the ones that are writing those regulations, because we have we cannot put the wolf, you know, to take care of the sheep. We need to, we need the experts, but at the same time, uh, we need to also have
0: the decision makers involved. Um, and then, uh, and I've I've seen in certain industries, um. You know there have been cases where, uh, so certain sciences like psychology will do experiments with people, um, and over time there's been growing moral beliefs about what you can and can't do with people. Um, uh, you know that uh, so. Uh, an example is uh, that, that psychologists have tricked someone into believing that when they press a button, another person is shocked with electricity in a painful way. Um, but the truth is, is that that person was was a part of the experiment and was not shocked. Uh, uh, and so is that, is it moral to trick someone as part of an experiment? Um, so maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, and so, but there's a gro- there was a growing list of a way to understand the morality of this. And it was not, adopt, it was not forced by law, but experimenters all over the world would reference that. They would say, in this study, we followed the rules of the 1979 protocols, you know, that were put out on this topic or whatever. Uh, and so, uh, and I think similar things have been done with with, um, with AI, uh, among other things where people referenced There were some rules at a conference called Asilomar uh, in the past, and people would reference the Asilomar rules um, and framework. So that I think, and that that doesn't necessarily require a supranational organization, uh, but that could be helpful in AI. So people will say, you know, we did, we have this result, and we followed the the protocols that were put forth by the the safety summit in the UK in 2023 or something. So. Um, let's see the, uh, so, um, uh, now we, we, sh- we have time for one last big question and for our audience, if you have other questions, now's the time to, um, to throw them into the chat. But I guess the big question is, can you go over what are the kinds of AI that are out there and what, uh, are they strong at? Uh, so for example, um, there is We have lots of medical images that are often used for diagnosis, and we have pattern-matching AI. And pattern-matching AI has been an extraordinary success with medical images. It often can view... You might have, uh, you know, uh, a a pathological sample has 300 slides, and each slide has over 100,000 cells on it. And a pathologist is not going to look at 300 slides, and they're not going to look at 100,000 cells per slide. Um, So they're going to look at a a smaller amount of that. They may look at five slides. They may may look at 300 cells per slide. Um, But uh, an AI could look at all of them, uh, for example. Um, And and can and does get a higher success rate. Uh, And so could you just go through the different kinds of AI and where they might be strong in healthcare? Sure. Um, There are so many...
1: Different application scenarios for AI, and there are so we can think in terms of the application scenarios and also the tools, you know, the 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 hammer to to beat each nail. Um, well, of course we know about generative AI right now, and generative AI is catching all the attention for text, for example. We are seeing that you could use that, for instance, to retrieve uh, relevant documents. So. Imagine a chatbot that helps you to dive into medical literature to make a decision for a specific treatment. Things like that are possible right now, thanks to generative AI. Also, generative AI is very good as few shot learner, as a few shot learner. Uh, For those who are not familiar with the term, uh, a few shot learner is uh, an AI algorithm that can be instructed with only a few samples and then can do a task as accurately as if it were trained on on a vast dataset. And we are experiencing that, for instance, in in our labs, every time that we use an LLM, a large language model for a specific application, we always give a try with it as a few-shot learner. And and that's super useful, for instance, for applications like code attribution or for triaging diseases, It's, it's it's really useful. Uh, As you mentioned before, um, images are super important in medicine and generative AI is not uh, being uh, taken into account for images as well. Uh, So, for instance, in my lab, we are using uh, generative AI to produce uh, synthetic ultrasound images to help clinicians to learn how to take an ultrasound scan, you know. So you can imagine that without having someone laying down and a, I mean, a patient. You can uh, work with a fake transducer, and you can like collect images from the patient. I hope that you are still there, Stephen. But the, the the audience is still there, so I will keep keep answering. Yeah. Um, so um, generative AI can be used in images, as I mentioned before, and it could also be used for generating tabular data. You know, which is also an important application. So, for example. I've read an article uh, from the University of Michigan. They developed a generative algorithm that is able to simulate sepsis scenarios. So you get all the parameters that you would get from a patient that suffers from sepsis, and this is intended for training them uh, in in determining which is the best uh, treatment option for the patient, you know. And sepsis, you know, is a is a huge deal. So having things that lets you play around with different treatments to learn what's the best way to, to proceed is, is really useful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, then all these tools for statistical learning are, are super useful and they are being applied, as I said, in like 80% of the cases. When we talk about statistical learning, we're talking about processing tabular data or time series or even these models that can forecast something. And these are super useful, for example, for resource allocation. That's super important if you need, for example, in the context of a disaster, you have a limited amount of doctors and you need to assign them to different scenarios. Well, you can use these statistical learning techniques to determine which are the ones that need urgent attention. And uh, also well computer vision is my field of expertise so I'm a huge fan of computer vision and the things that you can achieve with that. Uh, one of those is image- based diagnostics. as you mentioned before, you can use for example convolutional neural networks to determine if a patient is suffering or not from a specific disease. These systems are becoming more becoming more explainable themselves so that's super useful Now instead of just getting a binary diagnostic, yes, no. You can also get a heat map highlighting the areas of the images that were taken into account by the AI to make the decision. And that's super useful, you know, because then you can have a human in the loop, a radiologist analyzing that response and deciding whether this is correct or not. And this is helping radiologists to analyze more and more images in a fraction of the time that they were doing that before. So that's extremely useful. Uh, and you can imagine these combined with generative AI, for example, for writing the, the the clinical reports associated with these images. So that's that's amazing. Uh, also, you can use computer vision for uh, following up specific treatments. Uh, that's something that I have done before as well in 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 my previous lab when I was doing my, my postdoc in the University of Vienna. Uh, we were using AI to quantify objects in images. In particular, we were working with OCTs, images of the of the retina, 3D models of the retina. And we were segmenting cysts and, and different pockets of fluids that are generated by different retinal diseases. And we were using that to make follow-up analysis of specific treatments. And that was really helpful because every time that you were developing swelling in the retina and accumulation of fluid, you could get an injection of uh, a specific treatment and, and that should be reduced. So then you can use computer vision to analyze those patterns. Um, And this is also useful for clinical trials. So you can imagine that if you're trying a new drug and you have a population of people that was treated with a specific drug and one that was treated with placebo, for instance, you can compare those outcomes directly using AI and saving the time of the manual annotators. And then there's another disregard disregarded uh, field in artificial intelligence, which is reinforcement learning, which is a series of techniques that are inspired in the way in which we train our dogs. Every time that our dogs do something that we want them to do, we give them a treat. Well, this is exactly the same with reinforcement learning. And these algorithms are being used right now, for example, in applications like protein folding, which is super useful to discover new molecules and, and to design new treatments. And uh, they are also used to analyze the behavior of specific molecules without having to deploy them. So that's that's useful. And um, so, yes, I, I think that all these fields, all these different hammers that we have, computer vision tools, generative AI solutions, uh, statistical learning algorithms and reinforcement learning, can always match a problem in healthcare. It's just a matter of collecting the data, running the experiments and verifying if that's feasible or not.
0: That, that's great. And we actually, we have an interesting remark here from uh, from Fred who says, generated AI could be very useful to automate the preauthorization process Synthesizing clinical content directly from the EMR and even automating the appeal process. Yeah, very interesting. And thank, thank you, Fred. I've I've heard that area mentioned and also billing uh, mentioned as well. Uh, And so uh, these are certainly areas that are require skilled people and are very, uh, you know, sort of considered to be very frustrating work by those skilled people. Um, but you could make the case uh, from the relevant information using uh, a generative AI agent. Um, and so you could actually imagine the process between the, the the provider and the payer with one AI agent making the case <laughs> uh, for prior authorization for payment for a procedure, and then it's being received on the other end by a different AI agent who's trained to say no, uh, and then they get into an argument. Um, maybe that, that, that's... Be special to the U.S. healthcare system, though not not (laughs) um, uh, behaves that way. Uh, So, um, uh, and uh, let's see any any other thoughts on um, uh, you know on areas. So uh, people have brought up generative AI could be very useful in billing, Um, and then there's also just diagnosis, but not not medical imaging and computer vision diagnosis, but Uh, you know analyzing the whole emr to find all of the the notes and the uh, and the test results from the emr to have a a better diagnosis in complex cases Uh, you know perhaps uh surface a diagnosis that's rare that actually applies in this case that hadn't been considered by the doctors because they were not exposed to that rare to a rare tropical disease, or to so to a rare birth congenital issue, or so. Any other thoughts on um, uh, on uh, uses of AI, applications of AI?
1: Yes, uh, about generative AI. I think that one of my main concerns uh, with regards to diagnosis and automated diagnosis is the fact that these models are unsteerable and you cannot control them and you cannot guarantee if they are hallucinating or not. So, for example, you can imagine that if you have a generative AI that analyzes all these patterns and gives you a response, you don't have a way to decide whether this response was okay or not. You don't have... It's, it's not self-explainable. Even if you ask a generative AI to explain why it, take, it, it, it has taken this decision, um, it will never reply something that is related with the previous response. It's just a stochastic parrot. So you will get an answer that will sound pleasant to you and will sound like something that makes sense. But in the end, you will need a human making a decision out of that. And I think that's the most complicated part of generative AI, the fact that they are they 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 are sensitive to hallucinations. They produce hallucinations relatively easily. And that they are also um easy to jailbreak, you know? There is a huge effort right now trying to prevent that from happening. So you can imagine people injecting words in reports so that this generative AI fails. And um, that's really concerning. Uh, The same thing happened in computer vision as well. There is a whole topic that is known as uh, adversarial, uh, adversarial learning? No, it's, uh, well, anyway, it's like, Introducing something that is unnoticeable on the image, but uh, makes the AI algorithm fail. It's called adversarial because it's trained in an adversarial way. It's like you have something that is generating content on the image in a, in a way that you wouldn't notice as a human and trying at the same time to beat the AI algorithm. You have that problem as well. These computer vision algorithms can be jailbreak as well. But uh, still... I I think that my main concern with generative AI is that the fact that you can make them hallucinate and that they are easy to to hack. So I would be careful about using generative AI for diagnosis.
0: So I've seen some interesting stories in the press about, uh, you know, when we first saw these large language models, um, and the the first famous version was uh, OpenAI's uh, GPT-3 or 3.5, um, and uh, initially people thought, well, they got all their information for free from the internet, um, and so what's valuable here is the large language model. Somehow they figured out a large language model and rules around it that make it very valuable, make it, make it a, a great answer engine, and so that's very valuable. But the thinking about that changed, and it changed to, well, we actually don't want a large language model to read millions and millions of pages off the internet. There's a lot of crazy stuff on the internet. Um, uh, And so what we want is we want it to read very small amount of, or a a comparatively small amount of very, very high quality medical literature. That's what we want to read. Um, And then you say, well, how much of that high quality medical literature is in CHAT GPT 3.5? And the answer is nearly zero. Well, why is that? Well, because it's all hidden behind subscriber walls at the New England Journal of Medicine or the Journal of Mm -hmm. the American Medical Association or many other uh, journals. And so how could you use this tool in a healthcare setting if the most accurate, most valuable information is owned has an IP and is behind subscriber walls and is only available to subscribers. Um, and so that changed the thinking about what is valuable about about uh, and at the same time, many other companies were developing large language models for generative AI. So, it wasn't something that OpenAI alone possessed. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, then people changed their thinking and they said, well, actually, anyone who keeps a high-quality database that helps answer expensive problems, that database, the high-quality database, suddenly becomes much more valuable even if they never invented a large language model for it. Because now it's easy to go get a large language model and put it on top of that. So, in the world of text, anyone who you know owns a library of databases of engineering journals uh, those just became a lot more valuable or if they have a lot a large amount of medical journals those just became a lot more valuable or the service called UpToDate, date which is kind of an online encyclopedia britannica that's kept up to date by doctors for of of, of medical education topics um, uh, or medscape uh, the uh, doctor education online system these suddenly became much more valuable as high quality reference sources. Um, And likewise, um, there are archives of images. So there's famous uh, companies that have photographs, the rights to photographs from the last hundred years. Um, And uh, and so they have the right to use those for AI purposes, whereas uh, there are AI systems on the internet now that are looking at photos off of Google and Bing and, and using those photos, but they don't know if they have uh, the rights to that. So having, uh, whereas the photo archive companies know they have the rights to use their photos. So that, that, that's an interesting story that, that you may see, um, uh, the, uh, that you may see when, when you want to use a large language model, for a purpose in the law, in engineering, in medicine, in in major professional areas, um, you, you can't just ingest millions of pages from the internet. You have to go find databases uh, and those databases are all owned. And so that now gives the owner of the quality database a huge advantage.
1: Yes, um, about that point, I think it's, uh, uh, it triggered a few ideas uh, from my side, sorry. Um, I, I really believe that we can definitely innovate ourselves with large language models relatively easily, thanks to the efforts that the open source community is making to release those models. That way we can fine-tune those models, and that's super important. Um, also, the fact that you mentioned about data governance is super important. The owner of the data is the one that has the advantage in this setting because all the methodologies that are being used in the background are relatively easily easy let's say easy to to implement let's say you need a strategic partner to do that technological technologically speaking but but still is something that uh, can be tested and can be done relatively easily Uh, but owning the data is the most difficult part so i think that's that's a a key point that you raised but at the same time people is being uh, people are being smart you know when when it comes to finding out the data i have seen a paper that was published by researchers from the university of stanford that um basically leveraged data that is in twitter so it was a, a foundation model for histopathology they realized that histopathologists usually uh, shared images online on twitter to ask for a second opinion of other uh, of other specialists and so he decided to crawl all this information from internet images and text and train a multi-model model that was able to combine images with text. And now you have a model that you can ask questions about, that you can use to ask questions about the specific image that you have. And it responds to that. And in a, in a, in a self explainable way. So you can even verify if the answer that this foundation model is providing you is correct or not. So yes and no, you know, yes, you need to own the data, but at the same time, if you're smart enough to collect the data that we are generating constantly as a civilization, as a society, then you have an extra point and the possibility to innovate with AI as well.
0: I I heard an interesting story about that, which is that you know the the early AI companies, so that that would be OpenAI and Google are two of the companies that are most well known for having had AI research projects for a long time. Um, uh, So they, um, at a time when no one thought this was valuable, they went and gathered vast amounts of information um, and the legal structure was not clearly defined and they were not selling products to make money at the time. And they, they, but they needed this data to make a viable product. Then they released their products. Now suddenly they're selling a product and so there's a question, did, did they have the right to all of the data that they used? Um, and so that, that may be solved with, with lawsuits. But all of a sudden, many new companies entered and they all at the same time said, we don't have all the data that OpenAI and Google have, we need to go get some, some data. Uh, and so about six months ago, um, uh, the, uh, uh, Elon Musk, who owned Twitter X at the time, he made a very public complaint uh, and he said, someone was trying to do a database call on every single tweet ever published by Twitter. Uh, And it was some anonymous sites, I think he said it was in Texas, um, that was doing this. And he demanded they stop whoever it was and he said he would sue them. And he also reduced the number of tweets available. So it's something like, your last 30 tweets are available uh, readily if you make a call on the Twitter database, but not not all 30,000 tweets that you've made since the beginning of time. Um, uh, and so he, uh, and the speculation, I, I've n- I have not seen any more stories about this, but the speculation was that either this was a young AI company trying to go get a database, um, and you could imagine you know, top engineer goes to some junior engineer and says, "Go get a lot of data. I don't care how you get it." And that person then writes a program to call and copy uh, every single tweet ever published on Twitter, uh, which then <laughs> causes headaches and costs millions of dollars for the people at Twitter, um, and it means that they that, that, that someone out there is, is making unauthorized use of data that Twitter considers to belong to themselves. Um, other people have said it was probably an intelligence agency doing this, um, uh, but and I, I've never seen part two of that story to find out who it was <laughs> that, that did this. Um, but it, it, it just goes to show you as this becomes a, a more mature product category and as uh, new companies enter, they have a disadvantage unless they unless they have a proprietary data source to work with. Um, so, but we're almost out of time for the show. Uh, nacho, any, any more thoughts on um, on AI in, uh, in healthcare, and let me ask, I, I don't think I really understand drug disc- AI using drug discovery in healthcare. What, what, um, what kind of AI is used in drug discovery, and how, how does that work? How do you discover a new drug using AI?
1: Well, um, it's not, it's not my field of expertise, but I know a little bit about it. Uh, Again, the the type of algorithms that are being applied here are reinforcement learning algorithms, are these algorithms in which you get a treat every time that you do something correct. And uh, the idea is to reduce the search space, you know. So every time that you want to invent a new molecule, you basically need to first give it a try, uh, theoretically, let's say. Then you need to reproduce it in the lab. And then you need to test it on an animal model or something like that to verify if it, if it solves the problem that you're looking for or to, that you're looking to solve or not. Um, so all these process takes a super long amount of time. So what you can do with reinforcement learning is to train a model that design molecules that are stable, that are easy to, to fabric, you know, to reproduce on a, on a, on a lab and uh, yeah that's how they work and it's funny because since the adoption of this technology uh, you will you probably have heard about alphafold which is a one for protein folding that was developed one algorithm for protein folding that was developed by google based on the same algorithm that was used to train alpha go which is an algorithm for playing go you know a chess game, let's say something like that, a board game. So, um, yeah, the, the the kind of algorithms are using uh, in, in, that are being used by the pharma companies are are these these algorithms for designing new molecules. And uh, an interesting fact is that I have I I've read I think a year ago that Pfizer used similar algorithms to these that I just mentioned, to design the vaccine for COVID, for instance. So it's not something that is science fiction and that is going to be applied in the industry like in two, three, five, ten 10 years, but it's something that it's actually being used. So um, I think that's the, the the most important point of it. The fact that we are now seeing a technology that is being invented right now, but at the same time is being applied on every single field that you can imagine in healthcare. So that's the most exciting part for us, for the people who who was making research in AI for, in my case, for like 15 years. I'm seeing right now that these tools that we were inventing are being applied in different domains and, and the space is growing as fast as, as we can imagine.
0: That's great. I think I think that, that's a great note uh, to end on. Um, so uh, you know, so uh, thanks for coming on the show, Nacho. No,
1: thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward for the for the drink session and to answer that question about the if, if doctors will be extinct in five years. I will not spoil my answer, but I, I really look forward to see you in person in in Boston, and I hope that people in the audience also can join us
0: and share some drinks and uh, and a nice discussion. That's great. Thank you. Um, So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. And our thanks to our guest, Nacho Orlando. Our next show is on Wednesday, November 15th at 4 p.m. And the topic is, Our value-based future is arriving faster than you think with guest John Moore of Chilmark Research. And for our Boston audience, I hope to see you at our next Digital Health Drinks Night on Thursday, November 9th, 5.30 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel Bar. Um, To find out about uh, both of these events and more, and to register for them, you can go to stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is Stephen Wardell. Um, Thanks, uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.